Welcome to the Vancouver Holocaust Education Center podcast. With the theme of this episode being Holocaust photography from creation to donation. One day I'm in billets again and I get a letter from a boy who was with me in the concentration camp in Elsie, if you want to have your pictures, come to Krakow and I'll get them for you. The pictures I brought here were the pictures he that was Elsie Dunner, who we'll hear from more later. She went to, along with a little boy, great lengths to save her family photos. One she or family members had taken years ago, and later she donated these same photos to the VHEC. Now, before we go further, let me introduce myself. My name is Lily Hart, a graduate student at the University of British Columbia. You can hear more about this podcast series by listening to the prologue that me and my two colleagues did. Now, I'm not a Holocaust researcher. My area of study focuses on settler colonialism in Canada. However, I'm also a public historian with a broad interest in making research accessible for the public. So for this topic, I approached it not with the mind of an expert, but of someone wanting to know more and understand more, and that's what I hope to convey to you. So hopefully this episode gives you a bit of an understanding of what Holocaust photography is, and also what is unique about the VHEC's photographic collections. What we'll be doing is looking at how Holocaust photography is mediated. So how it's taken, collected, preserved, used, and donated. Before we get into mediation, I want to talk briefly about the chronology and themes of Holocaust photography. Holocaust photography overarchs many themes. Chronologically, it includes pre-war life, life during the Holocaust, and post-Holocaust life of survivors. Photos are taken by everyone from perpetrators to resistors. Other themes include propaganda photographs, photos taken by resistors in ghettos, and photos taken by liberating armies. Some of these are of ghetto life, of concentration camp life, and some include documentation of atrocities. Going to our theme of mediation, it's also important to note who took the photographs, who created them. Did the Nazis take them? The liberators, resistors, everyday people, family? Who created them? Whose eyes is the material being viewed through? Who collected and preserved it? And how does this context inform the photo and your own experience with the photo? What goes into saving photos, into preserving them and later into deciding to donate them. So today we're going to talk about mediation and the collections that are in the VHEC. We'll look at how people preserved photos, kept photos, took them, curated them, and donated them, and the process that went into that. One of the first issues we'll talk about is the act of the creation of the photos. Holocaust photos were taken for all kinds of reasons. The photos taken before the Holocaust might be family photos, the kind you or I take of ourselves and our families. Is Holocaust scholar Daniel Maglo says, quote, images that showed how people lived are an important dimension of Holocaust photography. They remind us that before and even during the Holocaust, photography served many of the same functions that it did before and that it did after, unquote. This could be photos of our school class, of the family dog, portraits taken during family gatherings or at the beach. We have all of those examples in the VHEC collection, 
examples which I'll link to in the notes. In addition, during the Holocaust, people took photos as a way to resist the Nazis. This might be a way of documentation, or again, it might just be of their family in order to preserve as much memories as possible. One example of photos taken during the Holocaust that are in the VHEC collections are of members of resistor groups, such as the one from the Kaplan collection. Another example is of a family that Louise Sorensen hid with. These types of photos are much rarer in Holocaust collections because of the inherent challenge of even getting a camera and the risk of taking photos. At the same time survivors were trying to take photos during the Holocaust, photos were also being used as a method of propaganda or intimidation by the Nazis, is recalled in this interview excerpt. This went down in a mm. way, yes, it, mm -hmm. because people were afraid and sometimes they, they uh, took pictures of people when they entered to stores. So, and what would they do with those photographs? Publish them in newspapers? Uh, not publish them, they threaten people not to mm. do this anymore. You just heard Holocaust survivor Manfred Karsch describe how Nazis tracked people who went to Jewish-owned stores by taking photographs. The act of creation was one used for intimidation, for creating fear. This was both a clear threat made towards Jewish business owners and also a way to isolate them from others. Another way photos were used by Nazis were as documentation of their war crimes. They kept a lot of records, which were later used in the war trials. They also used photos as propaganda. This propaganda might be a way of promoting the Nazi party, such as photos of Hitler smiling while he read the newspaper, or of anti-Semitic stereotypes. For example, in the VHEC Ronald Brown Second World War memorabilia collection, there is an assortment of cigarette postcard photos. So these were part of everyday life. Imagine you go into a store, you buy cigarettes, and these are the photos that are in the box. One of them, dated 1936, shows Hitler reading newspaper and smiling. The idea was that someone would collect all these photos and put them in an album that celebrated Hitler. But you can hear more about propaganda by listening to my colleague Carmen's podcast on it. Now, I want to talk about the act of preservation. When people were removed from their homes into camps or went into hiding, they often tried their best to hide family photos for later. This both created a hope for the future, that you might come back and get these photos, and also a way of preserving memories of loved ones, loved ones who might not survive. And that's something we can think about when we look at Holocaust photos, is that a lot of the times, the people in them did not make it out. Just somebody that cared about them did. Um, as we heard Elsie Dunner talk about earlier, a lot went into saving these photos, and it could be quite dangerous. We'll hear more from Elsie now. One day I'm in billets again, and I get a letter from a boy who was with me in the concentration camp, in, and the parents and her older brother worked with us in the ghetto. They were in the wood business also. And I got a letter from him. Elsie, if you want to have your pictures, come to Krakow, and I'll get them for you. This boy was a young boy who, who was in, in the camp with his brother, a parents, and two sisters. He lost his parents, he lost his sisters, he, he and his bro older brother were in the camp, and the older brother took care of him, and I kind of adopted him because he was a nice, young, bright boy, see? So the day I left Poishov, he came to me to out to the Appellplatz there, to the yard, to say goodbye to me. And I said to him, you know, Henry, I have this 
a number of pictures hidden between the lumber there. I explained him where, and I would like to save them. Can you hide them somewhere? If we survive, we'll get them. If we don't survive, so it's not important. And he said to me so solemnly, Elsie, I promise I'll save them for you. So that the pictures I brought here were the pictures he hidden from me. I, I went to Krakow, and uh, it was a nice summer day, and we went up to the camp, and there was a Russian guard was there, and we told him what we came, so we had the escort, and he brought us that Henry Kempler to a well. And he says, Elsie, here are your pictures. So I said to him, in the water, how can you have the pictures? He said, don't worry, the pictures are there. So anyhow, to make the long story short, he just went into water, pulled the pictures out in a wooden crate, and in the crate there was a jar from preservatives, and he had them glued glued it and in that jar were the pictures and they said they were hidden, put away in for my friend so and so and so my they, name and everything. So they were there for a couple of years. Yeah. So these photos that were saved were really precious to survivors. They contained photos of their loved ones and preserved memories of their own survival and it was a really risky act to keep them safe. Now, Holocaust photography and how we use it presents some challenges. Of course, all photography presents challenges. Photos are not neutral, even though there can be a misconception that they are. In the case of Holocaust photos, one big object of discussion is photos of atrocities. This can mean photos of people that were murdered at concentration camps. These photos are quite brutal, and often the people in the photo are nameless. These photos were used during the war and soon after as a way of communicating to those overseas what was going on. They were also used during war trials as documentation. I knew because it seems to me that my first, uh, the first impact on me with respect to concentration camps was a picture of General Eisenhower walking through a camp with the bodies all around and uh, I'm sure but I can't say that I was but I'm sure I was thunderstruck at this but no conception of what of the revelations that were to come no there's no doubt about that in my mind in terms of recollection that I had no idea so that was Stanley Winnefeld, a soldier who later brought back photos of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and donated them to the VHEC. And a lot of the photos of atrocities that the VHEC has are ones that were collected or taken by Canadian soldiers who went overseas and either, like I said, took the photos or found them and donated them or knew another soldier who had taken them and then it came into this person's possession and they donated them to the VHEC. Like I said, it's a challenge to think about when you should actually use these. Organizations like the VHEC often are faced with decisions on when and how to use these photos. There's a concern of recreating violence when showing these types of photos in exhibits. There's also the question of making sure to give content warnings in the collections. 
The VHAC are on the side of generally not displaying photos of atrocities in exhibits, instead centering survivor voices. Holocaust photography also presents another challenge of trauma and its impact on the generation after. There is a thing called post-memory, which is how people can deal with these photos and reimagine them in a way that helps trauma. Scholar Marianne Hirsch has written extensively on this. Post-memory is partly a response to how often certain photos of the Holocaust are repeated, to the extent that people worry they lose their meaning or perhaps not give enough agency to people, such as photos of nameless victims. Now, post-memory describes the relationship that the generation after, so the children or grandchildren of survivors, quote, bear to the personal, collective, and cultural trauma of those who came before, to experiences that they only remember by the means of the stories, images, and behaviors among which they grew up. Uh, that's quoting Marianne Hirsch. So this means that people born after the Holocaust may still feel the trauma of those who lived it through experiencing photography. Even those who are not descendants of survivors have reported feeling deeply shaken or traumatized from certain photos that they see. Hirsch says that, quote, post-memory's connection to the past is mediated not by recall, but by imaginative investment, projection, and creation. So Hirsch speaks to how the generations after can reimagine common Holocaust photos, with one example being the work of Art Spiegelman. So for example, Spiegelman redrew a famous photo of liberated prisoners, and he draws an arrow pointing to one and writes Papa. As Hirsch explains, quote, his indexual gesture, Papa, is also the resistant one of a child who's alive because survival was indeed possible, unquote. So photos can be remixed or reimagined by this generation after. They can also be reimagined by survivors themselves. Donors have made collages of family photos, for example, such as Louise Sorensen. And this can be an example of post-memory and imaginative creation in its own form. Now, lastly, I want to talk about the act of donation. How do people choose to donate such personal items and photos? What goes into this choice? How are collections arranged? What information can be gleaned from looking at a collection in its entirety? Sometimes by looking at one collection, we can see the trajectory of someone's life. Louise Sorensen has photos ranging from her pre-Holocaust life as a small child at school, to photos of the family she hid with, to a joyous photo of her and other Holocaust survivors laughing around a table at a reunion in the 1990s. Now the very act of donation is one that can be complex and difficult for the donor. Every photo has a meaning, one that we don't always see at first glance. I talked with Shyla Seller, the collections manager at VHEC, and she told me a story about one donor and a particular photo that symbolizes their survival as a child in hiding. Often when I talk to donors, you know, their stories are, are complicated and, um, and difficult and also people's memories come into play and um, so it can be difficult to kind of 
get information in a donor interview that you would like to get for every um, everything in the in the collection, right? But sometimes, you know, people will just highlight one thing that encapsulates their story and their experience. And I remember uh, this one meeting with a donor, a Hungarian woman named Alona Mermelstein, quite sure she could give up this one photograph of her with her childhood doll, because um, it was so precious to her. So, you know, we work through taking in these um, materials related to her, her parents and grandparents, and she told us what happened to them. And we gathered all this information. And, you know, then eventually, you know, we presented her like the finding aid and the cataloging. And then she came back with her photograph of her with the stall and decided that she did want it to be part of the collection. She did want to donate it. And this photo was so special because it kind of, it really was a about her. So Alona had experienced a bit of anti-Semitism as a child in school. And then she, you know, her grandparents were basically stolen out of their home and taken to um, taken to transit camps. And she and her mother were forced into hiding where, um, and they didn't, and it, they did had very uh, limited access to food and they were very hungry. And she remembers partly how they survived in hiding was her opening up the head of the doll's body and then eating the candies that she'd previously, through the course of child's play, fed her doll as she was trying to take care of the doll. And then they would take out these candies from the body of the doll like, and eat them. And that was part of their sustenance that they relied on to survive during while in hiding. Thank you for listening to the Vancouver Holocaust Education Center podcast. You can listen to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts under the name VHEC Podcast. The other voices you heard in this podcast include those of Manfred Karsh, Louise Stein Sorensen, Elsie Dunner, and Stanley Winfield, all who gave interviews for the VHEC's oral history collection. You also heard from the director of VHEC Collections, Shyla Seller. You can find more information on photography by going to the VHEC website, and going to the research guides where you'll find one on photography. In the gallery section, there's an exhibit devoted to the theme of Holocaust photography, created by my colleague Adina Williams. You can find the VHEC collections at collections.vhec.org and you can follow the VHEC on Facebook and Twitter under the name The VHEC. Mm-hmm.